1 Peter chapter number 1. And this morning we're going to begin a preaching series through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, we will begin studying this book verse by verse and on Sunday mornings and we will just move through it till we reach the end. It's a short book, only five chapters, 105 verses. And um, it, it'll take us several months. It'll take us into the fall uh, to get through it, maybe the winter. Uh, but I believe it'll be a very rewarding study. Whenever I um, begin a new study, a new book, I spend a lot of time in introduction. I, I love the history, the geography, the background, all of the opposing views. I, I love studying all of that out. We call that context. Co context is critical to comprehension. In hermeneutics, we would say the context is king. And so what I plan to do for, for this morning and next week, at least two weeks, is I just want to introduce the book. We're not going to get into the text per se this morning, but I want to introduce the book to you and, uh, and then we'll eventually get into verse by verse. But I want you to look in 1 Peter chapter 1 and I want you to look at verse number 1. Verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I, I think most of you know that I, I love to read, and I read a lot of theology books, obviously, with, with my calling. And, and I probably know Christian authors pretty much about as much as, as anybody, I suppose. Most of the authors that I read are dead or, or on their last leg. They're, they're of a previous generation. There are some good authors of this day, but I think that the better ones were in past ages. So when I pick up a book to read it, the first thing that I look at is the author. Who wrote this book? There are some authors that I have read everything they have written and wish that they would write more. There are some authors that I pick a book up and they just can't keep my interest. And so I never do read their books. There are some authors I, 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 I would never buy their book. There are some authors I would buy their book sight unseen. I think it helps to know something about the author. Not every writer that I read is an independent, fundamental, Bible-believing King James Baptist. And the reason why is because there's not a lot of those guys that are writing books. So if I read a book and I know that this guy is Calvinist or he takes a different position on the second coming than I take, then I have warning that if I'm reading and I come to such doctrine, then I'm forewarned to be careful. Be careful what this guy is saying right here. If I happen to know the author, like a James Knox, then my friendship with that author then makes me partial or impartial to his books. So, so it helps to know the author. So this morning, all that I want to do is I want to talk to you about the author of 1 Peter. That's the Peter, the man. Now, you already know about Peter. I, I know from the Gospels, one of the first disciples that Jesus called to follow him. And in the Gospels, we watch his transformation from Fishermen to fishers of men. In the book of Acts, we see his leadership in the early church. We would imagine that Peter is outspoken. He's outgoing. He is, he is impulsive and he's impetuous. He's quick to speak, sometimes before he thinks. He's nearly always putting his foot in his mouth. He was a natural leader. Now, he was not as supreme as the Roman Catholic Church would have us to believe, but he was the most prominent of the 12 disciples. In fact, in every list of the disciples, there's four of them, Peter's always mentioned first. In fact, in one of them, it said Peter the first. Judas is always last. Peter is always first. And outside of Jesus Christ, Peter is mentioned more in the New Testament than any other Bible character. Alexander White was a Scottish preacher uh, and author of the last, late 1800s, early 1900s. He wrote a book, and it's probably the definitive book on Bible characters of Old and New Testament. Here's how he described Peter. He said, no disciple speaks so often and so much as Peter. Our Lord speaks oftener to Peter than to any other of his disciples, sometimes in blame and sometimes in praise. No disciple is so pointedly reproved by our Lord as Peter. No disciple ever ventures to reprove his master but Peter. 
No other disciple so boldly confessed and outspokenly acknowledged and encouraged our Lord as Peter did. And no one ever intruded and interfered and tempted him as Peter did. His master spoke words of approval and praise and even blessing to Peter, the like of which he's never spoke to any other man. But at the same time and almost in the same breath, he said harder things to Peter than he ever said to any other of the 12 disciples unless it was to Judas. That's Peter. Now when you read the last scene in the Gospels involving Peter in John chapter 21, and then you read about the first scene involving Peter in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 2, there is such a transformation from the Peter of the Gospels to the Peter of the Acts and the Epistles that you wonder if it is even the same man. The cowardly Galilean who cowered before a maid in the Gospels now is a fiery preacher who courageously charges Israel with killing their Messiah. Uh, the Peter who voiced strong objection to any idea of suffering in the kingdom of God writes his first epistle, this book, to encourage believers in their suffering and to bear their crosses with joy and confidence. That zealous Jew who wanted to overthrow the Roman government and for Jesus to set up his own kingdom by force would later admonish the believers to submit to the king even if the king is persecuting you for your faith. And so the transformation is, it is so dramatic and it's a testimony to the work that Christ wrought in Peter during those years that they spent together in. And in meeting the author of this book, here's what I want to do. I want to take you back to the Gospels and I want to just pick out just a couple of scenes, not many, just three or four scenes that demonstrates that transformation that Christ worked in his life. And, and here's what I want you to see this morning, not so much Peter. I'd like, for him to, I'd like for you to see you. I'd like for us to see us. Because the transformation that God wrought in Peter is the transformation that God can work in your life and in mine. Would you take your Bible? Would you go to John chapter 1 and Luke chapter 5? John chapter 1 and Luke chapter 5. And the first thing I want you to see this morning in knowing the author is Peter's conversion and calling. John chapter 1, Luke chapter 5. Peter was from the small fishing village of Bethsaida. Grew up in a fishing village. It's only natural that Peter would become a fisherman by trade. He was most likely a rugged outdoorsman type man, no stranger to hard work at home, at sea, as, as he was on the land. And so Peter would know a lot about fishing and weather patterns and, and mending nets and all the kinds of things that a fisherman would need. Sometimes early in his adult life, he moved to Capernaum with his brother Andrew and he started a private fishing venture with two other brothers, James and John. He wasn't formally educated in the schools of the rabbis. He got his education from the school of life and the school of hard knocks. And the time that Peter lived in was a time of heightened messianic awareness. The people of Israel were weary of that Roman bondage and they longed for a political leader or a military leader that would help them throw off that yoke, raise up an army and cast off the Roman yoke. Maybe some of them had read Daniel's prophecy and had put the math of 483 years together and gathered, boy, this, this is time for that Messiah, the prince, to come that Daniel had talked about. And then there was this guy named John the Baptist who was walking around, he was preaching, and he was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And great crowds were coming out to hear this strange preacher from the wilderness and those who believed were being baptized and repented of their sins in, in anticipation and preparation for the Messiah. That's the time that Peter lived in. And among the followers of John the Baptist was Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. John the Baptist was telling everybody that Jesus was the Son of God, and Andrew was telling everybody the same thing. And the first person that Andrew told was his brother, Simon Peter. And through the influence of his brother, Simon becomes a disciple of the Lord Jesus. That discipleship comes in two phases. Look, if you would, at John chapter 1 and verse number 40. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and said unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. The first thing I want you to notice is that Peter comes to Christ. Christ calls two, issues two calls to men, and the first is for men to come 
to him. That call is given to Simon the day that Andrew brought him to Jesus. And I want you to notice that it involves a new name. Look at verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. stone. The word Cephas, is, is, it comes from an Aramaic word meaning, meaning stone. Translated into Greek, it is Petros. Translate that into English and you get Peter. So Simon becomes Peter. And it means stone. However, Peter is anything but a stone. He is not that. So, so Jesus calls his name, changes his name, and, 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 and he doesn't change everybody's name when they get saved, but the new name indicates that there's going to be a new nature. It is not what you are, but when I get done with you, it's what you will be. Uh, one writer that I read after, here's how he explained it. He said, exasperating though colorful, Peter blew hot and cold in the same breath. He dared to walk on water, but then feared that he would sink. He made a great confession, which was a revelation from the Father, then rebuked Jesus with a remark that reeked with the breath of Satan. He told Jesus he would never let him wash his feet. Moments later, asked Jesus to wash him all over. He said that he would die for Jesus. Hours later, declared that he never knew Jesus. He's a blend of courage and cowardice. He sliced off the high priest servant's ear in defense of Jesus. Then later, he slunk before a maid in denial of his master. Yet Jesus called him a rock. So, so, so Jesus gives him a new name. By the way, even after this, Simon is still called by his old name and his new name throughout the Gospels. And it's interesting to me that, that, that of the 20 times that he's called Simon Peter, putting it together, that 17 of those times, it is in John's Gospel. John keeps calling him Simon, Peter, old name and new name. And I think that John probably wondered, is he sinful, is he spiritual? I can't make up my mind about it. So he just called him by both names. However, when you get to the book of Acts, when you get to, this is important, when you get to the book of Acts, only one time is he called by the old name Simon. And it's in Acts chapter 10, dealing with Cornelius. And there is always Simon, which is called Peter. But after that, he's never called Simon again. It's always Peter. So, so, the, so the, old, the old name with the old nature has all but disappeared. As the new nature represented by the new name that Christ declared that it would become, it's becoming transparent. And here's the reason why I say that it ought to be an encouragement to every believer that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That he sees in you and I what we cannot see in ourselves. He sees a deliverer in Moses and he sees a hero in Gideon and he sees a rock in Simon. He sees a missionary in Saul and he sees you and I not just as we are but what we are becoming through the molding and the shaping of the master's hand. So Peter comes to Christ. But then Peter comes after Christ. Look at Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 and and this is where the call to ministry comes from. And I'll read several verses. And, and Brother Luke, if you'll turn me up just a little bit on my monitor to help me. Luke chapter 5 and look at verse number 1. And it came to pass as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. He saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen got out of them and were washing their nets. He entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. He sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a drought. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have told all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. A lot of writers and preachers make a big deal out of that where Jesus said, let down the nets. And he said, I'll let down the net as if I'm going to do partial obedience. I'll be honest with you. I, I don't know if that's what that means or not. But he did let down a net. Verse number six, when they had this done, they launched a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships as they, that they began to sink. 
When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the drought of the fishes that they had taken. And so also was James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. When they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. You see, Peter believed that, that Jesus was the Messiah, and and Jesus indicated that he would become a new man. But Peter and Andrew, they didn't leave everything behind to follow the Lord at first. A few months after this encounter with Jesus, probably Peter's probably alternating between fishing and, and accompanying Jesus on his preaching tours. And, and he would have seen a lot, of, a lot of miracles and it would confirm to him that, 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 that in his heart, Jesus was no ordinary man. And his faith is not complete because his revelation was not complete. But he knows enough to know that at least Jesus is certainly a man sent from Jehovah God. But the converted man must become a consecrated man. And while conversion costs you nothing, consecration is going to cost you everything. So it was one morning on the shores of the Sea of Galilee that Jesus caused Peter to leave everything behind and become his disciples. The backdrop is Peter's failure. We have fished all night. We have caught nothing. Fishermen are known for having tall tales. He had no tales to tell after that night of fishing. And after a long, frustrating night of futile fishing, they're on the shore and they're washing their nets and they're readying things for another trip and another time. And at the time, same time, Jesus is preaching in the coastal villages and great crowds are coming out to him. So Jesus comes down to the shore and the crowds are pressing upon him and he needs a safe place to preach from. And so he says, Simon, he said, let me borrow your boat. And he steps into the boat and launch out and just, just gets away from the crowd a little bit so he can look back and preach to the crowd. And after he's done preaching, the crowd disperses. He, he decides to reward the disciples. And he says, oh, launch out into the deep and, and let down your nets for a drought. We're going to catch some fish. And, and, and these fishermen take advice from a carpenter. And the Bible says that they went from having taken nothing to a great multitude of fishes. Peter is moved by the miracle and Peter falls on his knees. He says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord, to which the Lord replies, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And it's from that point that Peter and Andrew and James and John, they become full-time disciples because the Bible says that they forsook all and followed him. They left their boats and their nets that represents their livelihoods to follow a man who doesn't have a home, who doesn't have an income, who has no way of paying them, no promise of reward. And for the greater part of the next three years, they will walk all over Israel with that man as he trained them for the ministry that he has called them to do. See, Peter has come to Christ, but Peter is coming after Christ. And I want to just say this morning, it's not necessary to leave your career and your job behind in order to follow Jesus. But sometimes the Lord Jesus does call his servants to surrender even their occupations to devote their life to his service. All of us, all of us are to be full-time Christians. Sometimes the Lord asks us to be full-time servants, to be in full-time service. Many, many, and whether the Lord calls you to full-time service or not, many have come to Christ, but they're not following after Christ. Maybe you have come to the saving knowledge of Christ and you've trusted him to be your savior, but you've never surrendered to his lordship in your life. You're not called in the full-time service, but you are called to be a full-time Christian. Can somebody say amen right there? Jesus calls you to come to him for salvation, but then he calls you to come after him in devotion and surrender. And so we see Peter's confession and calling. I'll skip some events, but I, I want to show you Peter's, Peter's conversion and calling. Here's Peter's confession and correction. Go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. When you get to Matthew chapter 16, we're two years down the road. The Lord has worked with and taught his disciples. He knows that the appointed hour of his death is approaching. And it's time for the disciples to crystallize their conviction as to who he is. If they're going to be as witnesses to the ends of the earth, then they have to be fully persuaded that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And so Jesus takes his disciples up into the north country, away from the crowds and away from the critics, and he's going to teach his disciples a truth that they will never forget. 
And it's here that Peter in Matthew chapter 16 is going to come to another transformational point in his life. And I want you to notice a personal recognition. Look at Matthew 16 and verse number 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or so one of the prophets. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And notice who speaks up. Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Two questions. Here's the first question. Whom do Men say that I am. After two years of miracles and ministries, there could hardly be a person in the Galilean region that wouldn't have heard about Jesus. And having heard about Jesus, they have formed an opinion as to who he is. Maybe some of them have given more thought than, than others. Some secretly wondered, could he be the Messiah? Or, or is he just a great man? And, and, and judging by the disciples' answers, most of them thought he, he's either... He's either John the Baptist come back from the dead or he's Elijah, Jeremiah. He's one of the prophets. None of them were saying that he's the Messiah. Maybe it's John the Baptist coming back from the dead. Maybe, maybe it's Elias. Maybe it's Jeremiah. None of them were saying he's the Christ. But that question is just a set up to the second question. Whom do ye say that I am? You've been with me for two years now. You've seen more of me than anybody else. So who do you think that I am? And Peter always speaks up first. And sometimes he speaks impulsively. Sometimes he speaks without thinking, not this time. He has had time to think about what he's saying. In fact, Peter had made a similar confession all the way back in John chapter 6 when he had said way back then that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter speaks up. And it's not an impulsive statement. But listen to the confession that he makes. He says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. A lot of people believe that Peter is speaking on behalf of all the disciples. So, so this is the consensus of that group. That may be true, but I think Peter is speaking for himself. Maybe the others believe the confession. He's going to say it. Peter is speaking for Peter. And when he says that thou art the Christ, the Christ, that, that, that is a messianic term. You're the anointed one. You are the Messiah. You're the one that was promised all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. You're the one that the prophets all spoke about. You're the one that all of Israel has hoped for. That's who you are. Do, do, do you realize, do you realize that all the disciples believed that the day they started following Jesus? When you go all the way back to John chapter 1, here's what Andrew said. We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. That's what they said at the beginning. But it's been two years of watching nothing but humiliation and opposition and rejection. And this is not exactly what we thought of the Messiah. I mean, all of this meekness, that's not what we, how we thought that our military leader would come. So after all of the rejection that you have seen, do you still believe now what you believed at the beginning? And without hesitation, Peter says, thou art the Christ. But then notice what else he says. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. To say he's Christ is Messiah, to say Son of the living God, to say that you're deity. And Peter believes that. He doesn't fully understand it. But he's saying that he believes that Jesus is the Son of God come down to earth from heaven. He doesn't know yet why he came. And I believe you're a Messiah, and I believe you're the Son of God. It's a personal recognition. But then I want you to notice there's a profound revelation. Look at verse number 17. Watch this. Jesus answered, said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. How I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Then from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Peter has confessed a truth about Christ. Now Christ is going to declare a truth about Peter. And here's the first thing he says about Peter. He says that thou art Peter, verse 18. He says, thou art Peter, 
and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, I'm going to set aside for sake of time all of the Catholic confusion that is extrapolated from that verse. And I'll simply say that Jesus was giving Peter a prominent role in the building of his church. We do not believe that Peter was the head of the church, right? That's Jesus Christ. But Peter would be used by Christ and be given apostolic authority in the birth of the church. He would not only be given apostolic authority in the church, he would also be instrumental in bringing men into the kingdom of heaven. Look again, if you would, in verse number 19. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be, uh, shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now again, there's a whole message to preach from verse number 19. And for the sake of time, we don't have, to have time to do that. But, but I would just, just ask, how do you get into the kingdom? You get into the kingdom by believing in Jesus Christ. The key that will open the kingdom to you is the gospel. That will get you into the kingdom of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you have the key, then you have the privilege of opening the door to sinners. It's not that not that you have the power to exclude some and forgive sinners. It's not that. But you have the power to preach the gospel and sinners come in to the kingdom. Now, I know, I know that the statement goes much, much deeper than that. But here's what Jesus is telling Peter. I'm going to use you in ways that you never imagined. Now, now Christ declares the truth about, him, about Peter. And then Christ declares the truth about himself. Look again in verse number 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. The Lord has hinted at the cross several times before. But now, now, he openly states that I'm going to Jerusalem I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be raised again from the, the, the raised again from the dead. So he's speaking very directly, very, very open about that impending crucifixion. And it would be the most difficult truth for the disciples to understand because Jesus being crucified, it had no place in their theology. That does not fit in my plans for you to reign as the king over our nation. And Peter believed that he was, was the Messiah. But he's not ready yet to accept that he's the suffering Messiah. So the profound revelation follows with a presumptuous rebuke. Look at verse 22. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Peter has just been told in front of all the other disciples that you're going to be a leader in the church and the future kingdom. So Peter's confidence is at an all-time high. Maybe the disciples are asking him, hey, hey, what should we say about this? You know, the Lord's doing all this death talk. Right? Maybe, we, maybe we should say something to him. And Peter decides, I, I have to say something. And so Peter puts his arm around the Lord Jesus, maybe takes him off to the little side. And with all sincerity of heart, but ignorance of the scriptures, he rebukes the Lord for talking about the death and resurrection. I mean, it says, that he, he said, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Now, now, now understand, Peter's not saying we don't want you to die on the cross for our sins. That's not what he understands. That's not what he thinks Jesus is talking about. He thinks that Jesus is saying that because of the opposition, that when I get to Jerusalem, they're going to capture me and they're going to kill me. That's what he thinks he's saying. And so here's what Peter is answering. Oh, no, Lord, we're not going to let that happen. Lord, we got you back. I'm just telling you, me and the other 11, we are going to be there and we will take up a sword if necessary to defend him. And considering that Peter was the first to forsake the disciple, but forsake the Lord, makes us a little bit humorous. Oh Lord, we'll defend you in, in, in your dying hour. And in the dying hour, Peter was the biggest coward of them all. It's an empty boast. It's a foolish rebuke. Presumptuous rebuke, but then notice there's a pointed reprimand. Look at verse number 23. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. In one conversation, Peter receives the highest commendation from the Lord and receives the sharpest rebuke 
from the Lord. He's congratulated from having received a revelation from the Father. And in the next breath, he's called a tool of the devil. You have spoken out of sincerity and love, but you have also spoken presumptuously. And here's what the Lord says. He says, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, I don't believe that the Lord is calling Peter the devil. I don't even believe he's saying that you are possessed of the devil. But he recognized Satan behind the works of Peter. You have influenced Peter's thinking and you're using Peter to tempt me and the Lord addresses Satan through Peter. And it's amazing that, that a believer can say the things of God one moment and, and speak for the devil in the very next. That's exactly what Peter was doing. Here, here's what Peter's doing. P Peter's trying to tell the Lord that, that you can be the king without dying. And he doesn't even understand why. Peter's trying to tell the Lord that, that there's another way besides the cross. Do you know who else told the Lord that? It's Satan. That's who told him that. I mean, on the Mount of Temptation. I mean, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of these kingdoms and you can bypass the cross. And so Jesus recognized it as the same temptation as Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. But then he says, thou art an offense to me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. I believe the first statement is to Satan. I, I believe the second statement is to Peter. And the Lord is saying, Peter, you're a stumbling block to me. You don't realize that you're actually taking Satan's side in the matter. You favor things from a purely human perspective and you cannot accept that God has a different plan. If you knew the plans that my father had, if you knew the plans that my father and I have decreed, if you knew the redemption that would come out of this, you would understand, but you don't understand. And can I say this morning, I, I, I'm, I'm blowing through the scene, but, but it is a transformational moment for Peter. It is the first time that Peter and these others are come face to face with the reality of the cross. And though they don't understand, and they won't understand for some time, they still have to accept that Jesus is going to die and he will be raised from the dead. And that truth that Jesus taught them that day will become the most transformational truth of their life. Because that when Jesus did die and he did raise from the dead and he did ascend back to heaven, leaving them with the great commission, their entire life became over all about the truth that he taught them that day. And, and I would just say that it was, it was transformational for, for Peter to learn that and that while you may not understand the plans of God, that you have to trust the plans of God as well. And for you and I, it is not that we protest God's plan for himself, but we protest God's plan for us. I understand why he carried his cross. But why must I bear a cross? I understand his suffering. But why must I suffer? It shouldn't be this way. This is not how I imagined it. Are you with me? I think that I have a better way. But, but that is Satan influencing your thinking. It's thinking on a purely human level of thinking. Again, can I just stop right here this morning and just say that whenever a trial comes in my life, I want to see that trial as God sees it. And, and, and it is not that God needs to get his plans in line with mine, but I really need to get my plans in line with his. And Peter thought that he needed to correct the Lord. And if we're not careful, we'll think the same thing. But his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And his footsteps are not known, meaning that, that you won't always know why he's doing what he's doing. But I trust him. I trust him enough to believe that his plan is best for me. Hey, his plan of salvation was best, was it not? I do not believe I could have devised a greater plan of salvation than what he devised. And I tell you that the plan for the rest of my life, it is best. Peter's confession and correction. I take you into another scene. Matthew 26, Peter's declaration and denial. Look at, look at Matthew chapter 26 and we can look at all four gospels. We'll look at Matthew's account. Matthew chapter 26. And this brings us to the final hours of the life of Christ leading up to the crucifixion. There's been so much tragedy leading up to this point. But I really think that that betrayal of Judas, the cowardice of Pilate, all of that, that the saddest scene in the crucifixion story has to be the denial of Peter. 
He had followed the Lord so closely, he denied the Lord so quickly. And you have to wonder if any man has ever fallen as hard as Peter fell. And in Matthew 26, you have Peter's faith. Can I tell you that for all of Peter's faults, he loved the Lord Jesus. That when Peter boasted that he would die for the Lord, he really meant he would die for the Lord. I just want to remind you before we read the verses that Peter left a business and forsook everything to follow Christ. I want to remind you that Peter was in the inner three. He was closer to Jesus than just about any man on earth. I just want to remind you before we read the verses that Peter stepped out of the boat and walked on water. And do you know how Jesus prayed for Peter? He said, Peter, I pray for thee that thy faith fail not. And it didn't, his courage failed, but his faith never failed. Peter, Peter's faith, but then there is Peter's faults. Because when a person falls, there's usually warning signs. A man commits adultery, runs off with another woman. There's usually warning signs. And even in this chapter, there's warning signs that Peter, you're not as strong as you think you are. Look at chapter 26, look at verse 31. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye should be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock should be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men should be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. That's, that's admirable that Peter felt so strongly about dying with the Lord. It's not so admirable that he has so much confidence in the flesh. You see, in his heart, he, he knows that he loves the Lord. He believes that his loyalty is strong. My, my faith is invincible. That there is nothing that would ever cause me to deny you. My, my convictions are, are set in concrete. There is no amount of pressure that can break me. And that, that kind of self-confidence is, is admirable. It's not advisable. You may feel that your faith is so strong that you'd never deny the Lord. Don't make that your boast. You may, you may say, hey, hey, my, my faith is, is strong even to the point of death. Yeah, but remember that your flesh is still weak. Look, look, look at verse 34. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with him, yet die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. There, there's two subtle changes that take place in this conversation. First, Peter has spoken. Jesus has spoken to all the disciples in verse 31. And in verse 34, he speaks directly to Peter. And before in verse 31, he had used the word offended. You'll all be offended. But now he speaks of denial. And what a rebuke to Peter's pride. Peter, not only will you not stand with me like the others, Peter, you're going to go one step farther than all the rest of them. You're actually going to do worse tonight than the other disciples. And Peter's not trying to save face. He's truly willing to die for the Lord. If, the, if this night the Romans come and if they arrest him and, and, and if they're going to try to crucify him, no, I'll take out my sword and, and I will defend him. And again, he knew how strong he was. He didn't know how weak he was. If you look at verse number 58 of Hurrian. Look at verse 58. Peter followed him far off to the high priest's palace, went in and sat with the servants to see the end. And that statement has been analyzed by every preacher. Peter followed him afar off. It's a frightening scene. They're arresting people. It's a natural reaction not to stand around and become martyrs. So Peter is following from a distance. It's not so close as to be identified. But I'm talking about warning signs. Peter's faults. But then you have Peter's fault. And Peter's fall is given as an illustration of what Paul said. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. The disciple who would die for the Lord didn't have the courage to stand for the Lord in front of a little maid. And I give you some insight into the character of a man, the true character of a man. Your true character and spiritual state will always be revealed in the involuntary response. Here, here's what I mean by that. Your character is not manifest by what you are prepared to do. It's manifest by what you're not prepared to do. The things that catch you off guard reveals the strength or the weakness of your heart. 
Peter wasn't expecting the maid to question him. And he just spoke. He reacted before he could think it through. And in that unprepared moment, you see what is in the depths of his heart. And revealed that despite the boast, despite what he believed in, there's a lot of cowardice, there's a lot of fear in that heart. And Peter thought, Peter thought that he could handle anything. I'll follow Christ anywhere. I can see others forsaking Christ, but I, I will never do that. And when the Lord warned him, it's not enough. And when the Lord told him to pray, I don't need to. And there's a lot of Christians who belong in this scene that they're quick to boast of their conviction and my faith and how strong I am, but they don't live it out day by day. They're too impressed with their own spirituality. While at the same time, they're neglecting of spiritual disciplines. They've not yet denied the Christ, but they are in the courtyard warming their hands by the enemy's fire. Peter's declaration and denial. I give you the last thing this morning and I'll be done. But I want you to see Peter's repentance and restoration. I want you to go to John chapter 21. Are you still with me? Say amen. You know, Matthew ends that whole saga. Matthew ends it with one statement where it says that Peter went out and wept very bitterly. It's interesting that at the end of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that that's the end of Peter. That when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it ends with Peter weeping. And if that's how the story ends, then it's very tragic. But John gives us a postscript to the story that gives us some hope for Peter. And nowhere does it say that Peter repented. But I know he did because of his restoration. Peter would become a great preacher. Peter would become the leader of the church in the book of Acts. And between his great fall and his great ministry, there had to be a great brokenness and a great repentance. And the hope in the narrative is that no matter how great your sin, no matter how great your fall, God's grace is always greater. There is a stark contrast between the Peter of the Gospels and the Peter of Acts. The Peter in the Gospels is always opening his mouth at the wrong time. He's always making empty boasts. He goes so far as to deny that he knows the Lord. But the Peter of the Acts preaches at Pentecost, sees 3,000 people get saved, writes two epistles, and dies a martyr strong in his faith. And you wouldn't understand the transformation without one chapter in your Bible. And it's John chapter 21. It is literally the last scene of the Gospels. And it shows you the restoration of a man who was a lost cause. That though the sin was great, that though the fall was tragic, that though the shame was unbearable, though he knew his ministry was over, there stands Jesus ready to restore him. And I'll show you two things and I'm done. But I want you to see how Christ restored Peter. Look at John 21 and verse 18. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself. And walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, and catch these two words, follow me. And let me give you something. Just look right here. The Gospel of John was the last Gospel to be written. Some believe it was written around 95 A.D., as late as 95 A.D., just before John died. The other three Gospels written years earlier during the lifetime of Peter himself. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all end with Peter's story the same way. He's weeping bitterly. That's all that you know. And I wonder, I wonder how much that it grieved Peter to have those Gospels tell that story, and it ends there. It ends with his denial of Christ. How would you like for that to be the final chapter of your life? But the Holy Spirit would not let it be the last chapter of his life. Because long after Peter has died, the Holy Spirit commissions John to write one more gospel. 
And this time, John, you cannot put your pen down until you tell the rest of the story about Peter. The final chapter in the four Gospels is to tell you that Peter, that Christ came to Peter on the seashore and he talked to him and he forgave him and he even promised him that he has a purpose for him in life. Isn't that a blessing? Oh, I wish I had time to preach this and I know that I'm out, but the restoration of Peter, it involves sacrifice. You'll eventually give your life for the Lord and it involves service from this point on. Your life is going to glorify the Lord and it's going to involve surrender. Do you notice the last thing that Jesus said to Peter? Follow me. Hey, do you know the first thing he said to Peter? Follow me. The first command is the same as the last command. My purpose for your life has not changed. I still want you to follow me. That's how Christ restored Peter. Then I want you to see how Peter represented Christ. We won't go there, but in Acts chapter 2, 50 days later, after the ascension of Christ, Peter stands before that great crowd in Jerusalem at Pentecost and he preaches. He sees 3,000 people get saved and the church is born. Within days, the same Sanhedrin that had crucified Jesus calls Peter and John to stand before him. This is the same crowd that Peter has ran from just two months earlier. But this time, Peter stands in great boldness before these murderers and he declares that Jesus is the Christ. You have crucified your Messiah. God has raised him from the dead, which is proof that he is the Messiah. The council gets together and they debate, what are we going to do about this? I mean, it, it, it's gotten out of hand. So here's what they tell Peter and John. Speak henceforth no more of this man. And the old Peter would have done that, not the new Peter. Here's something interesting. I'm trying to be done. It's interesting. The word boldness, boldness, shows up in the New Testament nine times. Do you know who the first man in the Bible that it says that he has boldness? It's Peter. In Acts chapter 4, three times, they saw the boldness of Peter and John. The last man that you would expect to have boldness is Peter. He's actually the first man in the Bible that says that he has boldness. He's bold to preach the gospel of Christ so plainly before a Jewish nation that had crucified their Messiah. He's bold to defy the Sanhedrin. He said, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. He's bold to deal with the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. He's bold to deal with the sorcerer Simon in chapter number 8, this transformation. I don't know how true this is, but Eusebius, the church historian, wrote in his history, ecclesiastical history. He said that Peter was crucified, and he was crucified upside down. And the tradition, and I don't know if this is true, the tradition, the tradition is that Peter and his wife were crucified on the same day. And that they crucified Peter's wife before him and watched, forced him to watch. But then they were going to crucify him. And just before he did, he begged them, do not crucify me like you crucified my Lord. And he asked him to crucify him upside down. I'm not worthy to die like my Christ. Tradition says that his jailer saw his faith and that his jailer got saved. Now what changed Peter from the Peter of the Gospels to the Peter of Acts and the Epistles? Here's the change. The old man was the Peter before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The new Peter is after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The old Peter is before the cross. The new Peter is after the cross. The old Peter witnessed the gospel being played out on the stage of Jerusalem and Israel. But the new Peter experienced the gospel being played out in his own life. It's one thing to hear about the gospel, but it's another thing to experience the gospel. For it to be lived out in your life. The transformation that God worked in Peter's life from clay to rock is the transformation that he can work out in your life as well. Come to Christ, come after Christ. Peter the man. I heard a song years and years ago, old, old song. 
I was going to have Anna learn it and play it for me. I didn't. The boy sure tells the story. Peter, do you love me? Go and feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Take care of the weed. Peter, do you love me? Stand up and be strong. Now I have to go away, but I'll not leave you alone. When they took the Lord from the garden, Peter followed them. Someone recognized him and said, there's one of them. Peter, he denied him three times in a row. But his heart was broken when he heard the old cock crow. Peter, do you love me? Go and feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Take care of the weed. Peter, do you love me? Stand up and be strong. Now I have to go away, but I'll not leave you alone. So on the day of Pentecost, the Comforter arrived. He came in like a rushing wind with cloven tongues of fire. Peter stood up and began to preach to them the holy word. And after 3,000 souls were saved, these words you might have heard. Peter, do you love me? Go and feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Take care of the weak. Peter, do you love me? Stand up and be strong. Now I have to go away, but I'll not leave you alone. Well, Peter grew stronger in the faith and preached throughout the land. He walked and talked and prayed to God, obeying his command. And then they crucified him. They nailed him upside down. His words you might have heard. As the hammer rang out loud, Lord, you know I love you. I've tried to feed your sheep. Lord, you know I love you. I took care of the weak. Lord, you know I love you. I've tried to be strong. Thank you, Lord, for loving me. I'm ready to go home.